Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Salam alaikum. Hello and welcome to the Sydney Writers' Festival 2023. My name is Benjamin Gilmore and I'm delighted to welcome you all here to Stories of Afghanistan. First, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Aura Nation, the traditional custodians of this land, and pay my respects to elders past and present and to Indigenous people who are here today. Afghanistan, a country that intrigues us and confounds us, a place we seem perpetually drawn to. No wonder this session was one of the first to sell so many tickets at the Sydney Writers' Festival. There's always more to know about Afghanistan and its people. I've travelled to the country several times and shot a feature film there, Jirga, currently still on SBS for another three days, if you're interested, and have written a book about the experience, Cameras and Kalashnikovs. Those of you who were here yesterday may know that I've just returned from the country a few weeks ago, and today I find myself in the company of writers I greatly admire, all far more intimately connected to Afghanistan than I am, authors whose works have, in different ways, illuminated Afghanistan's kaleidoscopic past and present through war and unrest, but also through culture and community. Zaheda Ghani, to my left here, and her family arrived in Australia from Afghanistan as refugees in the 1980s. At nine years old, Zaheda, also known as Zoe, to some hand-wrote her first novel using an HB pencil in a scented diary with a lock and a key. The heart of what she wrote then developed over many years to become her stunning debut novel, Pomegranate and Fig, Pomegranate and Fig, right here, shortlisted for the Rochelle Prize for Emerging Writers. Zaheda was also a recipient of the Western Sydney Emerging Writers Fellowship. Zaheda is an ambassador for Australia for the UNHCR and lives in Sydney with her husband. There's quite a few people here that know Zaheda today, including her writing group in the middle <laughs> of the room. Dukane um, Ayubi is an Afghan-born writer and born writer and restaurateur, arriving to Australia in 1987. She's a lifelong fellow of the Oxford University-based Atlantic Fellowship, which seeks to rewrite global social inequalities, inequities. She's the author of Pawana, Recipes and Stories from an Afghan Kitchen. I want to hold up your book, Dukane. Published to global acclaim, winning awards in the UK and the US. Her work has been featured in the New York Times, the LA Times, Al Jazeera, BBC and beyond. Andrew Quilty is the recipient of nine Walkley Awards, including the Gold Walkley for his work on Afghanistan, where he was based between 2013 and 2022. It's a long time. He's also received the George Polk Award, the World Press Photo Award, and Overseas Press Club of America Award for his investigation into massacres committed by CIA-backed Afghan militia. August in Kabul is his first book. Thank you, Andrew. First, I want to express to each of you how much I have enjoyed reading your books, especially being as obsessed as I am with Afghanistan. And I want to start with an individual question to each of you um, that came out of my reading of your books. Then we'll move on to uh, some discussion. Zaheda, your Hena, Rahim, and Hamid in Pomegranate and Fig have kept me company every night for the past two weeks. I felt a deep love and care for these vulnerable characters that you brought to life. 
so vividly in your beautiful writing. Um, I really cared for them. And I thank you for this gift. It was an extremely touching, beautifully written book. I cannot recommend enough. I have so many other questions and comments, but let me pick one um, in a moment. First of all, um, would you please read a little from your book? Sure. Thank you for your kind words. I'm just going to read uh, the beginning chapters uh, that sets the scene for the rest of the story. Um, part one, uh, it's called Henna. If anyone asks thee which is the pleasantest of cities, thou mayest answer him aright that it is Herat. For the world is like the sea, and the province of Khorasan like a pearl oyster therein, the city of Herat being as the pearl in the middle of the oyster. So that's a quote uh, from Jalaluddin Belhi about Herat, Afghanistan. Uh, the youngest daughter of Khoja and Koko is so delicate that the 120-day winds of Herat could blow her away. Her bones are made from porcelain, rigid and fine. A diaphanous, a diaphanous girl in cotton dress and pantaloons, she's lifted high above Herat to the height of the ancient minarets of Queen Gauhershad and carried to a far corner of the world. As she floats, her hair twists and wraps itself around her white face, enfolding the arch of her long, slim nose and the glass lids of her large, closed eyes. Family and friends tell her lovingly that she is too sickly, too thin. She is not beautiful by the standards of the time, which prefer curves and flesh. Her two rose-cheeked, curvaceous eldest sisters, Nargis and Roya, are considered beauties by all. But they become jealous because their beauty doesn't seem to be enough, because she receives so much more attention. They do the chores around the large house. They study through the night for exams. Hena studies alongside them. She stays awake all night to feed her brain, to replace her lack of beauty with an abundance of knowledge. She must study even harder given her mind seems to settle, never seems to settle long enough on one idea, doesn't retain the biology, the math, the chemistry. It retains the poetry and prose, but even that for a short while. Every good mark she gets is the result of twice as much study as her sisters do. This morning, she is wrapped in layers of woolens, proud and blue with cold. Her thin waist threatens to break as she lifts her heavy school bag onto her shoulder. Like most days, her elder sister Nargis will carry it for her through the 45-minute walk to school. This evening, the strain over her study of several days and nights dissolves into a fever that lasts a fortnight. She takes medicine to alleviate the fever, but it cannot settle her anxious mind. She wishes for her life to be uprooted and scattered by the rush of the 120-day winds. She doesn't know how real this wish will later become, this uprooting, brought not by, not by nature's fury, but by the ferocity of war. Thank you. That was beautiful. Your story could be set, I suppose, in any country where arranged marriage still takes place. I was so moved so early on in your book as Hannah struggles with the loss of self in service to Rahim or the prospect of it. Uh, I really expected Rahim to turn out to be terrible. Um, but in this instance, he really shows up. Uh, it was a surprise. And there were many other moments in the book where 
you took unexpected turns, um, which really kept me on my toes. Was this a conscious thing as you wrote? I think it was more about who those who I wanted these characters to be. And as I was writing them and getting to know them and refining them, I realized that there was something that I was actually interested in was the impact on of their experience on identities that they had. So where you start off is um, Hena has this understanding of herself as someone that's a weak individual and her society is also seeing her as 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 that not having that kind of personal power and through her journey and with the war and everything that she goes through she becomes that strength of of person that holds the family together with Rahim, it's a, the reverse of hers, where he's, by in all um, evidences of internal and external to himself, as a powerful person. And he is taking a different turn through that journey to actually take a back seat in, in their lives. And actually, there's a, a moment where they're in the India um, airport, uh, where when she takes the bag on her shoulder, that's the moment where he realizes he doesn't have to do all this alone. So it was really more about what, how are their characters being impacted uh, and how do their identities evolve as a part of their experiences. Dr. Kanai, um, you know, I was probably one of the first people to buy your book, Parwana, um, when it came out, um, such as my love for Afghan food. It has to be, hands down, the most beautiful, beautiful book of recipes ever printed. And um, any time I visit Adelaide, I come to your restaurant. Uh, what I'm saying is I'm a fan of your work from way back. <laughs> um, and my favourite dish in the whole world has got to be the Kabuli Pilau. Lovely. Yeah, I bet that's a favourite for you too. It is, yes. So like Zahida, you've spent most of your life um, here, not in Afghanistan, right? And you grew up on stories and and food of the place um, from, you know, stories um, from your family uh, and from your reading, I guess. And like Zahida's book, I got a sense um, that your writing might be a kind of relationship to the land of your dreams. Um, to, to what extent do you think your book and even the act of cooking Afghan food is an act of connecting to your ancestors and a place you cannot or will not physically inhabit and how much of it is honoring and honoring of something mm. of that deep within you i think that food is story and um so the two kind of really combined in my life um from a very young age um food became a central part of our life as refugees. My family arrived to Australia in the mid-80s at the height of the Cold War in Afghanistan. And so in so many ways, food became this proxy for everything we'd lost, the culture, the memories, the ancestral connections. And in so many ways, I'm so grateful for that because for us as children, my sisters and I, we were all under the age of nine when we arrived to Australia. And without that very tangible connection to our ancestry and homeland, um, there was very little else to connect us to stories in a direct primary way. And so it's really as I've kind of, with time and gotten older and as food has become this increasingly important part of our lives as a family from, you know, my mum, just her passion for Afghan cuisine, her 
the recipes in the book are all hers. I just had the honour, the privilege of kind of bringing my mum's recipes into this book, um, ancestral recipes passed down to her, and having the chance to kind of put that into narrative and story and, and understand and kind of process what food meant in my life as a, a young refugee arriving to Australia. And I think what I found is the answer to that is never-ending and forever evolving. And um, it's food has been this entryway for me to understand everything that has been lost. The memories that will never be mine because of the displacement and the oppression and the suffering that Afghanistan is now going through. And I felt, I guess, a sense of deep responsibility to understand that story and to do it the justice and the honour of telling that story beyond the narrowed confines that Afghanistan is always um, confined within, where we're seen through a lens of militarisation and war through the conqueror's eyes rather than through our own. And what I found by opening that door is more than I ever dreamt of, really. I found my ancestors, I read their work, their love letters, their hopes and dreams for Afghanistan, their belief that we could be self, self-led, um, made in our own image. And really, those were things that awakened my consciousness so deeply um, that I, that Afghanistan isn't a hopeless place, that there were people that have always had aspirations and um, dreams for it, and that I, um, living here in Australia, yes, um, the privilege of safety and stability, yes, but still a very deep connection to my ancestry and my homeland. I don't have the luxury of not being a part of that story and not contributing to the, um, the future of actually imagining a future for Afghanistan. And food and everything that it opened up for me, which is you know, a story beyond our either warrior um, and savage-like or sullen, passive nature, um, a story that goes far beyond that, a story that says, actually, we have these deep entwined histories at the centre of empires that came together, that forged human civilizations, cultures and identities that, as we know it today, that we actually have this really rich literary history that our own ancestors wrote, that it tells a story of interconnection and exchange rather than the dominance that has destroyed not just Afghanistan but our world. And for me, I actually find such prescience in those stories. Um, and all of that came to me through my connection to food. So. It is something I have to deeply honour. And in, in fact, that history that um, you've written in the, in the beginning of your book, uh, I found really um, easy to follow and fascinating. Um, um, in fact, would you want to read a little? Um, Maybe not from the history section. But... Yeah. I mean, I don't have to if you'd rather spend yeah. the time asking questions, but I can just read just a quick... Maybe, maybe a little okay. bit, just so we get a sense of the book. Sure, sure. Thank you. I'm going to be really boring and just read from the first page. Um, and full of beautiful photography as well. I yeah. Have to say. Like the whole book is amazing. The, our team, yeah. um, very, it was incredible to work with the team. They just did such a brilliant job, such a beautiful job. I also open with a quote from Jalaluddin Balkhi, which many of you will know as, know as Rumi. Um, and the quote is simply, what you seek is seeking you. My family never had any grand plan to be in the restaurant game. Parwana began with my mother, Farida, and her intuition that as migrants to Australia, it was increasingly important that we preserve the customs, flavours and essence of our Afghan cuisine, and also to share it with those in our new home. She carried within her a generationally ingrained love for her traditional food and the rituals that sit alongside it. 
This combined with our experience as displaced people, witnessing firsthand the scattering effects of war and Afghanistan's memory and culture, coaxed Parwana into being. In this way, Parwana was driven by commemoration, reconciliation and creativity, tinged with a mixture of loss and hope. In hindsight, the strands of the idea of Parwana had long existed in many guises and had been finding their way to us to consolidate and express well before we opened the doors to Parwana in 2009. The restaurant and the food we shared was a manifestation of the immense history of cross-pollination and cultural exchange that underpin Afghanistan's history at the centre of the ancient Silk Roads. As time marched on and change unfolded on the land, including the emergence of Afghanistan as a nation-state, this was captured in the cuisine and the traditions surrounding it. By the time the heavy clouds of conflict gathered overhead, my family had migrated to Australia, and with the emotions of exile, whose challenges and opportunities were now ours to carry, food took on new poignancy and significance. Food was never static, but an ever-evolving way to stay anchored to our history, while filling our sails with hopes for tomorrow. For us, food had become a means to tell a bigger story. This book contains not only the recipes, but the history, energies and emotions that lie behind them. Beautiful. Thank you. Andrew, we've known each other for a while. I think we first um, talked in 2016 in Kabul on the phone when I was heading to Jalalabad to shoot Joga. Um, like many of us, I have long admired your photojournalism and then at some point discovered that you're not only a brilliant photographer but also an exceptional writer. The full package. Um, I now have two copies of your book, August in Kabul, and I've read it twice. Incredible. This account of the collapse of the American-backed government in Kabul reads like a thriller. I can't recommend it enough. I'm not going to speak too much on politics today, but I can't help myself with you, um, and I think it's just inevitable when it comes to Afghanistan, so please indulge me with an answer to this first question. There seems to be a tendency in the West to think of the Taliban as brutal and the foreign forces as professional and somehow conducting their fight in an honourable way. And yet journalists like yourself who have got out of the kabubble um, and talked to Afghans in the provinces know better. Hence this quote from your book, both sides used whatever means they had to the most devastating effect possible, often with little care for civilians in the area. Has it been difficult trying to remain impartial while moving between the Kabubble, the Kabul bubble, and into very traditional rural areas where locals supported the Taliban resistance? How has it been to walk that line to ensure balance, to be a voice for Afghans who often have starkly different dreams for the country? Good question. Um, yeah, it's, it's um, incredibly difficult. I think to begin with, the, the conceit of the objective journalist um, uh, is, is, you know, is, is pretty problematic to begin with, um, particularly in a situation like mine where I was A, a foreigner, B, male, C, living in, in Kabul, um, kind of somewhat under the protection of the, um, the, the Republican government. Um, and having been, uh, you know, le led to see the, 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 the conflict as very much black and white, good versus evil. Um, you know, it, it, it didn't take me long to, 
work out once I'd arrived there that it was, you know, not not quite as simple as that. And that, um, as you said, when, when I did manage to get outside of Kabul and into the more rural areas where, you know, the, the war, the, the war, um, that, that few of us actually saw, you know, that was mostly the the spectacular bombings and things that would occur in, in Kabul that, that um, most of the audience here today would be familiar with um, from what they had viewed in the media, whereas the majority of the war um, happened out in rural areas. And when that was seen by um, a Western audience, it was almost always through the from the perspective of the um, uh, the, the foreign forces, and then to a lesser extent, the um, Afghan government's forces, um, and that was very much used to to the international forces' advantage, you know, um, um, and and continues to be. You see that in in Ukraine today. It's a, it's a huge part of the um, the war effort, and and so I think um, going there and seeing it myself after the majority of the international forces had left, and um, giving me little um, else to look at but the experience of Afghans themselves and particularly um, Afghan civilians um, upon whom the war had been imposed. And, yeah, it, as you say, the, their experience in the, in the rural areas was very different to that which I had been led to believe it was from, from afar. And, um, you know, as we've seen in the last few years with the um, Australian Brereton Report and, and, um, and, and think similar things, um, our legacy there is not... I mean, it, it's obviously been tarnished by what has come in the last couple of years and, and, what, um, and the, the situation of Afghanistan today, but also the, the behaviour of a, a minority of international forces when they were there and the impact that that had on the community's um, feeling towards them and hence how they felt towards the government that these international forces were fighting on behalf of. And so I, I think there's a, um, the international forces, Australians among them, have a, a lot to answer for in as far as the situation in Afghanistan today, I, th I really think they turned a large part of their rural population against the government um, and turned um, ordinary non-combatants into... Um, uh, forced them into a position where they had no alternative but to pick up a, a weapon. Now, that's... Um that's the impression I got from, from your work. In, in fact, on, on that point, I, I heard quite a bit from Afghan civilians in the South recently that it was only when they started killing civilians, like they being foreign forces, when a lot of civilians started dying in night raids, that people started really supporting the Taliban. Um, there were several mentions in, in your book about that too. Um, and that's how foreigners seem to lose support when their actions didn't reflect, or our actions didn't reflect our declared values. Um, and so I'm interested actually for, you know, to explore this just a little bit with all, with all of you. Um, Zaheda, to what extent do you think this was also a problem with the Soviets? Um, because I felt there were a lot of parallels in your book 
um, between you know what was happening then to what we've experienced or Afghans experienced in recent in recent times. This socialist ideal that appealed seemed to appeal to a lot of Afghans early on, and then when the Soviets came in and started doing blanket bombings, suddenly it didn't look so great. Um, and I know we just touched on briefly um, something your late father said. Um, that Afghanistan defi defies categorization because there are so many differing aspirations. So maybe all of you have something to say on Sure. I think um, there was, through kind of reading about that time and the events and, and talking obviously uh, to family and a lot to my father as well as other family members, there there's a point where my, my father actually used to talk about how um, there are some triggers, some aspects of the Afghan existence that if they're triggered, that's when you see that kind of uh, discomfort with who are you and what are you doing. You know, it's, it's around the values or the religion or the traditions that maybe they're not understood in the depth that they should be understood in um, by somebody that is not uh, you know, that is foreign to that culture. And so uh, his way of, I guess, describing Afghanistan to us as we were growing up was that it's really not a homogenous uh, culture. It's not one language. It's not one tradition. And, uh, you know, we grew up celebrating the fact that there were so many faces of this this beautiful culture. So, but I, I, I know, I've, I've learned through that kind of understanding that, that part of the history that, yeah, there's, um, there was a, a part of the population that thought there was going to be modernization as an outcome. And so they went to that direction, but then realized actually the motives of that promise were not what they thought they originally were. And maybe that's what you're alluding to in terms of the parallels um, here as well. Um. Well, I want to start by saying I'm not a foreign political analyst and I don't come to this conversation as that, you know. I'm just my mother's daughter and that's how I... and that's why I'm invested in conversations about Afghanistan. But because as Afghan people, you know, we have to be across so many different things for what it's worth, <laughs> I would say that the idea that war and conquest could be benevolent is, to me... Um, Beyond, beyond comprehension. So the original sin of how we now engage with Afghanistan stems to me, in my opinion, from the hubris, the pathologization, the paternalization of entering a country under the guise of liberating us and freeing our women through bombing us into submission. And so I think any conversations that flow on after about who did what to poor, ordinary, disempowered Afghan people is, in a way, not the conversations that are the most primary or the most urgent to be having. And I can't speak for what's happened to those poor, ordinary Afghan people because we have rendered them voiceless. It's not that they don't have their own thoughts and views on what's happened to their country, to their existence, to their livelihood. It's just that none of us want to listen. And so for me, I think that everything about the war was about imposing and taking away 
and it was about a lens that mattered more to uh, the domestic politics of the US and the West. It was vengeance, and it was an easy target that was Afghanistan. And then to have these tropes brought up now that we are graveyard of empires, that we were too tribal to ever, you know, be civilised, to me that is salt in very deep wounds because our tribalism has always been stoked based on which um, aspiring conqueror needs to divide us. From the British through to the Russians, through to the US, through to the Taliban. And I don't see the Taliban as different to the oppression of the US. They were made by the international forces and Western and external conspiracies to ensure that the region was chaotic. You know, you read the history of the covert things that are happening, we'll never know the extent of who supported the Taliban and how this extremism came to be. But that monster was unleashed, <laughs> um, and unleashed um, with intent. And so I think we're kind of relegating ourselves to very marginal kinds of conversations when we fight out amongst ourselves about, you know, which system could have liberated us. How about if we give Afghan people the dignity to know their own histories, to allow us to shed the layers of imperialism that have been heaped upon us, to not marginalise us from our own stories? What happens if we reclaim those stories and know ourselves and our ancestors and have our own dreams? You know, what opens up from there? That's what I'm more interested in knowing. Mm -hmm. All your books are, in a way, um, about migration, the refugee story as well, and what gives rise to it, the heartbreak and the challenges of leaving your country, of coming to a new place. Much of your book, Andrew, is based on interviews with men and women who were either involved with the former Afghan government, army, etc., or civilians who didn't fancy living under theocracy, um, the impending theocracy, and made a break for the West. Um, and Zahida and Tokana, your families both migrated from Afghanistan in the 80s, as we know, during Soviet occupation. I too have quite a few Afghan friends who left just before uh, or during August 2022. But many are having a really hard time in Europe, mainly, and it just wasn't what they thought. Um, a couple have even decided to return, which I saw recently. Um, to be here or there seems like something many Afghan migrants are really torn about. Um, maybe all of you have something to share on the, in this migrant story. And I don't know what it's like for your, your friends that left that are in the book. How are they going um, in wherever they ended up? Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, I was going to say um, to your previous question, the, the only thing I had to add was um, any sentence that begins with all Afghans. All is, Afghans, yeah. Is, yeah, right. Is inaccurate. It's going to be inaccurate. But I would say um, um, <laughs> there might be a, um, an, an exception to the rule because m most of the Afghans that I know um, who have um, found themselves in, in Europe or Australia or, or elsewhere since 2021 have found it extremely difficult or, you know, barely tolerable. Um, I think um, certainly more, I mean, for me personally, um, I found that Afghans had a, a much stronger um, connection to family and, um, and their land than... Um, 
than I'm used to here. And I think um, being, you know, I think it's, it's quite, it's almost like a rite of passage in, in Australia to, you know, you, you finish high school and, or f- you know, for a certain um, uh, demographic anyway to, to, you know, go and do your gap year or whatever. And, come an know, individual. Yeah, yeah, find yourself and come of age and all that. Um, I think um, it's, it's, it's almost, um, I, I think that, that idea for um, a lot of my Afghan friends is a lot, harder to contemplate and, and the, the pull back home was always a lot stronger. Um, being away from family was a lot more difficult. Um, and, and so I think now, particularly given the fact that, that those moves have been forced upon people, they haven't, you know, none of these people have left because they wanted to. Um, it's, it's been forced on them by circumstances. Um, you add that on top of just you know being otherwise away from home, away from family. It's it's a very difficult situation, and um, and you know the, the the people who are in Afghans who have made it to Europe or here. I mean they're the you know quote unquote lucky ones. The the vast majority are you know waiting in sort of third countries and you know joining the never ending queues for. Um, refugee status and, and whatnot, and it's extraordinarily difficult. Maybe you both have something to add to that too. Well, to be honest, I actually know more people who are waiting for a response than people who are here and who have resettled. And again, you know, I think that speaks to a great travesty because I'll backtrack a little as well and say it's really heartbreaking to see that for Afghan people to have, um, I guess, a life in that they can build towards a future and stability and that kind of thing, that they need to leave Afghanistan. Um, that's the first heartbreak. And that, again, the country loses its skills, its um, people are losing their connection to their, their, their homeland, their culture. Um, the people that could be building Afghanistan are targets and need to leave. So for me, that's the first travesty of the situation. And then the next layer of it is the way in which Afghan people seeking to leave after the country became intolerable for them because of what has been imposed on us, the way those people have been treated. So I helped and my family helped over 100 people fill out visa applications and we haven't heard a single thing back and it's been two years, apart from a few kind of acknowledgements that your your, um, application has been lodged. So there's just so many layers of a lack of agency and um, a disempowerment that happens even in that act of seeking refuge and safety. Um, And I think it's something critical that governments that were involved in Afghanistan have to answer for. And to be perfectly honest, at the moment, Afghan people um, with applications and that kind of thing in the pipeline are being totally um, shut out. Um, There's kind of no will to communicate what's happening. Out of the 200,000 people or so, I think they're the figures, um, 6,000 applications have been processed. So what I know is a large number of people in limbo waiting. And the conversations that I have on the phone with cousins and family and total strangers that are in Afghanistan who somehow we managed to connect with and, and try to help in some way are it's okay, we'll be patient, we know we'll hear something soon. You know, their incredible kind of dignity in the face of what's happened to them. Um, 
the people that I know that have made it out of the country are people, some of them are women that I'm working with who were um, parliamentarians and leaders in Afghanistan before the Taliban takeover of 2021. And I find great inspiration in them. Um, one of them is a group um, of Afghan women. Um, they, the country, the men, the male politicians got out very quickly because they were backed by um, military power. But the women who got to their positions through grassroots and hard work were literally left in Afghanistan, even though they were primary targets for Taliban, especially at those initial moments of when the country collapsed. About 20 of these 60 female parliamentarians managed to make it out of the country and arrive in Athens because of the First Lady of Athens helps and intervenes. These are an extraordinary group of women, all leaders and parliamentarians who still want to do something for their country, even though now they're all in different parts of the world. So I'm working with women like that who say, you know, we on the outside, with our deep connections and our hopes and aspirations for, for the people on the inside, you know, we don't have the luxury of giving up and thinking that this is futile. So there are many things we can do as diaspora and... Um, that's kind of one of the things that's happening, and they're doing it in the face of extreme mental health challenges and constant worry for the people that they've left behind. Um, so, yeah, they're just some of the stories that are starting to emerge. Tara was thinking we weren't going to talk politics, but this is... Um, it's inseparable <laughs> what was from our happen. lives, really. It's, it totally is. Um, Zaheda, maybe we can talk about... Maybe you can talk about writing. Yes. Um, this is what you really wanted to do. You really wanted to write um, a novel, and you've written a really powerful, moving novel. And some, um, you know, maybe people who read your novel expect that there is some message in it that you're trying to push. Um, what do you have to say about that? Sure. Um, I, uh, so I decided that I wanted to be a writer when I was in year six. And a kind teacher showed me the library. And the first novel I ever read was When Hitler Stole Pink Rabbit by Judith Kerr, and there was this eight-year-old girl, or nine or around my age, uh, talking about how her family had uh, fled and how, uh, you know, referring to herself as refugees and all of the loss that went with that. It really resonated with me, and I decided that one day I would write my own refugee story, and of course I wrote that in the diary and shipped it off to Sydney Morning Herald and never saw it again. But the thing is that... Um, uh, it, it, so the genesis of like wanting to create a story and having that point of inspiration as the starting point um, is all I've really wanted to do was be a writer ever since I knew what it is. Uh, so uh, I thought that I was going to write something that had a statement or was a memoir or had some kind of, you know, uh, stance that it was going to put a message out. But every iteration of everything I've written that was in that style felt like eating cardboard and ultimately just didn't fit. And so uh, getting into the... Uh, realising all I really wanted to was tell story that I was interested in was really liberating. So I decided to keep the historical backdrop and there's challenges with which version of history it is and all of that stuff, but um, really write about characters that I'm interested in. Now, since the book has come out, people have um, kind of talked about how it humanised maybe the refugee numbers that they see on television. Or, And um, I put some of that in the intro where even through the manuscript process, um, speaking to different people that read it, I 
came away with a bit of a grain of hope that maybe if somebody um, cares about these characters, understands their journeys, um, is exposed to our culture and cuisine, there's a maybe a human-to-human -human shared humanity connection that's made there. And maybe next time they do see one of, you know, a, an Afghan in a burqa on television, they understand that she has a story, a narrative, a history, a heritage, and she's not just a number or yet another burqa-clad lady on, on TV that you just kind of... When it's newsworthy, it's there, and otherwise it's not. So, no, I didn't set it set out that way, but people take readings from that and have, uh, you know, shared back what they took from that. Well, creating that humanity is such an important, you know, act in a way, you know. Um, Unintentional, but yes. Yeah, but it's so vital to, to this wider political narrative too. Um, and you did it so beautifully. Um, I have to say, like, each of those characters, they really live with me for that time. I just I feel like I know them. Um, just shows uh, how great a writer you are. On the topic of, of uh, food, just coming back from Afghanistan, um, I put on in three weeks something like five kilos. Right? <laughs> um, I'm sure you all know why. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's just... Something there, I, I loved the history you wrote of how that all came together, how, you know, when you're a guest there, you're literally force-fed, right? It's, this, this is what happens. Um, has that been your experience as well, Andrew, that, that you, over there? I don't know. I actually found the, the force-feeding is worse in um, the Middle East. Is it really? <laughs> I find you can actually say no in Afghanistan and it's usually respected <laughs> but with a bit of pushback, but... Um, um, yeah, I mean, the, the food is a huge part of the culture in Afghanistan. And I, and I was thinking about this, you know, how, how you're actually going to tie um, the three of us together today. And so I was thinking about food and <laughs> what I could um, bring to it. And it made me think of how um, ritualistic dining is in Afghanistan. And, and it doesn't matter whether you are in a, um, a camp for um, people displaced by the war who have nothing but um, some blankets and pillows to sleep on and, a, and a, um, a kettle for tea, or you're dining at the presidential palace, it will always, there will always be a sense of ceremony and, and ritual to it, um, far more than it is here. Like it's, it's, I think we have a quite a casual um, culture towards um, food, but there it's yeah, something, you know, you... Um, you're seated, and it's it's um, it's always displayed in a in a big um, you know a long spread and lots of plates and um, I always always really appreciated that that aspect of it and it would you know the day would stop twice a day whatever was going on I mean the, um, I don't ask me to say it in diary but um, um, the the one of the many wonderful proverbs is uh, no. No eating before, uh, no fighting before eating. Uh, yeah, that's and, great. Um, and it's also yeah, it's very true, actually. The sharing element is, I found, so important as well, the act of sharing the food. Um, as long as your rice grains are not stuck together, because God forbid that happens. <laughs> that, I know. Afghans know how to do rice so well, so well, and meat. <laughs> um, and I'm largely vegetarian, but I kind of let that go for three. But this is the sharing thing in, in, in my house uh, with, with my kids. You know, we've even got this tradition now where we have just one glass at dinner at the table that everyone drinks from. It's not really hygienic in the age of COVID, but 
in Afghanistan, it's a, it's a thing. Like, you sit around a rug with a whole bunch of people and they'll all take from the same bowl of flombe or, you know, from the same cup, they'll drink water. It's, do you find that sharing thing is an important aspect of it? Yeah, definitely. It absolutely is central to um, Afghan cuisine and identity. Um, I think for Afghan people, and, you know, Andrew, you alluded to it, like irrespective of what you have and station and that kind of thing, food is this equaliser. And when you come into somebody's home, um, there's an element of the divine to that in Afghan identity, that a guest is a gift and that to honour your guest is, to, is your own honour. And um, I guess without being too, like, caricature about it, just even in my experience of growing up around Afghan food, uh, it really is about inviting people into a space. And I think most importantly, it's just about seeing each other. So that act of being seated and given things and sharing, it's the act of being seen that is central to, to food and the way we eat. And um, sharing is a huge part of it too. Like we get together before the actual meal and we make things together, right? Like the, it's almost like the cuisine is designed in a way that it does bring people together. And there is a very gregarious and collective element to um, the cultural identity. And I think that's why the, the food and the cuisine is such an important thing to stay connected to for me as well. Because in the face of everything else, in you know, there's so many kind of um, things happening um, for, for in Afghanistan and for Afghan people. But then this cuisine is just this reminder that we can still come together around joy and beauty and and just be together. Um, yeah. That was very. That was also um, in your book. There are a lot many references. The header in your book to food. And even when Rahim and Hena are out of the country, that's kind of their, their connection, their kind of anchor back to place. I might um, see if there's anyone in the audience who wants to ask a question. We have one. Already. We have one already. Oh, fantastic. This is a question for Zahid Ajan and Durkhan Ajan. As Australians yourself, Afghan Australians that have lived here throughout the period in which Australia invaded and occupied Afghanistan, that would have been a very significant experience in your lives. How has that, living here, while the country you, your family fleed to, goes back and invades your own country, how has that shaped your identity and sense of belonging here in Australia? Um, in many ways. I think it um, made me understand the world very differently. It made me peer behind the dominant narrative and ask what's actually going on here. Because, you know, we're raised at this intersection, um, this, this straddling of worlds, really. The world has kind of cast East and West as irreconcilable. And here we are on that cusp of that abyss, right? As young, I was a young Afghan woman when that was happening. I was in my teens. So it was really formative. So the world post the invasion of Afghanistan and the war on terror 
really shaped my identity because I saw the ways in which we were being increasingly dehumanized in ways that seemed to just keep amplifying and keep intensifying. And for me, as a young person, it was really the beginning and the dawning of a consciousness that I just couldn't ignore. It had to understand my history. I had to understand where I came from because I knew that what was being said about me in the dominant narratives was not the extent of my story. So I would say that for me it was a gift because it was my um, kind of the beginning of knowing that my role would play out straddling these worlds and that I had to be informed about where I sat and that I had to contribute something that reached beyond the confines and the sanitization that was happening to Afghanistan. Um, and also as a woman, the war on terror in Afghanistan was about, a huge, you know, Bush, um, George Bush, when he made his State of the Union speech about invading Afghanistan, said, today Afghan women are free. And so what it did to me was it all kind of bring into view the duality and the the contradiction, the paradox of what things like democracy and freedom and liberation could be. Because while I was living in a country where I benefited from democracy and the stability around me, the country of my birth, my ancestry, where my memories, my blood, where all of that is held, was on the opposite end of what that democracy could be, which was oppression. You know, and so I really had to navigate my consciousness understanding where I sat in these paradoxes. Um, but ultimately, I think it gave me the gift of knowing that there's more and to ask deeper questions. So, Heather, do you want to add something to that? Sure. Um, beautifully said, as usual. Um, for me, it's a kind of trying, uh, focusing on the things, the, the contribution, the small contribution in this vast and uh, dangerous world that I can make. And so for me, it's really about going back to the question of there's actually no uh, reason why I have this experience of having fled with my family, being in this position in, in the world, in, in my life, and how there is really very little difference between me and those women that are um, there today and have been through so much. And so that gives me a sense of, uh, well, I'm not, it, it, there's, there's a limit to my human capacity on what I can do. So I channel that focus into giving back in small ways and, and trying to work with organizations where, um, you know, they're partnering to make things better and doing my, my kind of own uh, small contribution. Otherwise, I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a very difficult uh, to try to swallow the whole whale and I feel a bit too overwhelmed by all the things. Mm. Thank you, Zahedan. We have another question. Is religion a reconciling force that brings people together or has the Taliban's enforcement of religion made it a thing that divides people and pushes people apart? I mean, I do have a little I could say about that. I think that um, religion has been weaponized in Afghanistan and that it's become a practice that for many ordinary Afghan people is foreign and unfamiliar. So if you look at the history of the region, 
Afghanistan was always quite mild. So we took on Islam with the Arab conquests, but it was never a fundamental and fanatical version of Islam. Actually, Sufism emerged and really centered and anchored in what's today Afghanistan. So we have this spirituality and this, yes, Afghans are religious people and follow Islam, but the kind of um, very severe and restrictive notions of that Islam that's playing out today, I say has a lot more to do with um, the global order of um, the way religion is developing in the Arab world and in Pakistan and has infiltrated into Afghanistan. Um, and a lot of it has to do with the post-Soviet um, departure in Afghanistan where refugee camps were filled with dis displaced people who now had nothing. The madrasas and the influence for that extremist religion started to really fester then, like in the post-80s. And so, unfortunately, Afghanistan is living out a version of religion that has a lot to do with a capitalist world <laughs> that's crumbling, you know, and I would say that that's really where the extremism comes from. Um, it's not because that's the way Afghan people are, that we're so tribal and ossified and kind of very extremely religious people. And when it becomes ingrained into the kind of um, law and order, law and disorder of the day, then it's very hard to see what ordinary Afghan people are like and what their personal kind of connection to religion would be because you just have this overriding kind of um, loud extremism that takes all the hues and the layers away. In writing this cookbook, did your mother contribute with you and did it give her a sense of identity and allow her to explore that part of herself in a way that possibly she may not have otherwise? And what did that do to your relationship with her? They are all my mum's recipes and everything that we do in relation to Parwana is very much a family-oriented thing. Like, it's not any one person. So it's basically my sisters, myself, my brother-in-law, the next generation, nieces, nephews, mum, dad. You know, like, we kind of feel like this, the restaurant and the food has become this part of our life that is so um, giving and it just kind of keeps... Um, giving in really generous ways in terms of um, identity and giving back and contributing and humanising a culture, creating entry points into Afghanistan that people might otherwise not have. Um, for my mum personally, I don't want to speak for her. <laughs> She's in Adelaide in the restaurant <laughs> while I'm here. But um, I think she, it was her vision that, you know, she should she called Afghan food a treasure that she needs to pass on to us as her children. I'm one of five girls. And she taught all of us about Afghan cuisine. And then she was entrepreneurial and kind of switched on enough as well to know that the cuisine could also be shared with other people in our new home. And I think it's done really incredible things for her as an individual because she's really proud of the restaurant and, you know, I hear her speaking to, like, sisters or, like, um, cousins and that kind of thing that, you know, live in all other parts of the world and they're really proud of her for what she's done. And for my sisters and I, you know, we look at our mum and... Um, 
I just think she's incredible. You know, through everything, through that departure, that loss, they faced it as adults. You know, she still had the wits about her to say, you know, we've got something beautiful to contribute. We'll do it here and, and let's see what happens. Um, so it's been really formative for her in her identity too. And there's lots of things we'll do together or as a family, um, like food events and that kind of thing. Like we just did a Tasting Australia event together. And, you know, people love my mum. She's like Mama Pawana, you know, like to people in Adelaide who come to the restaurant and love it. And I personally just feel so thrilled that my mum and my dad, um, as older Afghan people, can have that contribution that they're making to society and feel really valued for it. So I would really love to thank Saheda, Dani, Kane, Ayubi, Andrew Quilty for coming today and sharing their insights and their stories with us. And let's, let's keep caring about Afghanistan. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.